Hello, my name is Dr. Russell Cohen. I'm a professor of medicine at the Pritzker School of Medicine and the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at the University of Chicago Medicine in Chicago. And I'd like to welcome you to today's live and on-demand broadcast entitled Novel Treatment of Inflammatory Bowel Disease, Informed by Science and Patient Choice. This CME activity is brought to you by CME Outfitters, the best-in-class accredited provider of continued education for clinicians around the world. Today's program is being streamed live and will be archived at www.cmeoutfitters.com. And I encourage you to share this resource with your colleagues or team members who are not able to join us here today. I also encourage everyone to join in on our live Twitter conversation using hashtag IBD. We will be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to your tweets as they come in. And don't forget to stay with us for our after the show segment when you are encouraged to call or email us with your questions or cases. Our goal is to ultimately help you improve the lives of your patients. So please submit your questions and feedback. And with that, welcome to our show. I am excited about today's program and I look forward to discussing a real world clinical case that will help you translate the latest evidence to optimal care of your patients with inflammatory bowel disease. With me today are my esteemed colleagues, Dr. Gary Lichtenstein. Gary is a professor of medicine at the Raymond and Ruth Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He's also the director of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show, Gary. Thank you, Russell. It's a pleasure to be here today. Also with me today is Dr. Miguel Reguero, who's a professor of medicine and head of the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Center at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. Welcome to the show, Miguel. Thanks, Russ. Okay, so let's start by reviewing our learning objectives for our program today. First, we will define the mechanism of disease of IBD and the role of novel agents in treating this disorder. Next, we want to describe available treatment paradigms and options for treatment failure in moderate to severe IBD. And finally, we will explore how to implement a maintenance treatment plan for IBD to achieve mucosal healing and remission in moderate to severe IBD. Gary. Will you tell us about Ms. S, who comes into us for a consultation? Surely, Russell. So, Ms. S is a 23-year-old woman who presented with moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. She has active symptoms and had a colonoscopy done recently, which demonstrated the presence of <clears throat> pancolitis. Endoscopically, she had edema, erythema, extensive ulcerations that extended from the rectum to the cecum in a continuous fashion. The intubation of the ileum was normal. She had been treated but had an inadequate response to steroids and mesalamine treatment. Okay, so before we move in to discussing treatment failure, let me ask our audience a question that I think may be interesting. You will see the question on your screen. What percentage of patients with ulcerative colitis do you think go on to have an aggressive course? Is it A, 20%, B, 35%, C, 50%, or D, 10%? Please provide your answer now. So let's go back to Ms. S. 
So she has an inadequate response to steroid and uh, mesalamine therapies. Miguel, what mechanisms of disease could be at work here? The mechanisms of disease, as you know, are not entirely clear for inflammatory bowel disease. However, uh, like immune-mediated diseases in rheumatology and now in gastroenterology, we think that there are a few factors at play. <clears throat> One is that there might be a genetic predisposition in certain patients. However, over time, the environmental factors that impact such things as the microbiome probably play a large role. And this leads to this dysregulated immune response, which basically means this autoimmune process that causes inflammation in the gastrointestinal tract. This immune response or this dysregulation, and in the case that Gary just presented in the patient not responding to 5-ASA or steroids, there's probably something about the immune makeup or the cytokine profile of these patients that would require additional or stronger or better treatment than what she's received so far. So it seems to really be a combination of different factors in IBD. Gary, you agree? I would agree, and it's important to recognize that we can alter or perturb some of these factors, uh, and by learning the mechanistic uh, factors that lead to the inflammation, we've been able to alter this. So does this mean that all patients have all these mechanisms? How do we know? Yeah, and I think, um, so what Gary said, I think that <clears throat> probably the biggest role right now is this microbiome. And I know each of our groups and others are looking at that right now very carefully. So things like diet and how does stress or cigarette smoking or pollution play a role. So to your point, Russ, I think that it's, it may not be all three factors in everybody, but there is probably a large environmental component that leads to an immune dysregulation. Okay. So... Let's see what our audience said about <clears throat> disease behavior quickly before we move forward. The question, as you can see, was what percentage of patients with ulcerative colitis have an aggressive, aggressive course? Most of the, of the people who responded, 44% of the total, chose choice B, said 35% have an aggressive course. Well, Miguel, what do we know about disease behavior in ulcerative colitis? There have been a number of studies that look at the natural course of disease. Uh, Solberg et al. probably put together the best study overall looking at the natural course. And what they found, interestingly, uh, despite the audience response of about a third of patients having an aggressive course, it's, it's actually probably 50% the patients will have an aggressive course. 50% benign, meaning the 5-ASA and steroids in Gary's case, the patient would have gotten better but 50% are more aggressive, and this patient really represents that one of those aggressive patients. Wow, so the answer to the question really was 50% of the people uh, have, move on to aggressive course. That's quite astonishing. Gary, so we've seen this data now. 50% of the patients may move on to a more aggressive course. I think that uh, we as gastroenterologists often will do colonoscopies on our patients. Are there any predictors endoscopically when we scope them to let us know where, what direction this patient may be moving? Well, in the era of personalized medicine, Russell, this is important. We can individually prognosticate for patients how they're going to do in general. We can't tell a person this is a roadmap that you will have, but we recognize there are key endoscopic features that will portend a prognosis that is more severe. A very nicely done study by Carbonell looked retrospectively at patients and recognized that whether patients had severe endoscopic colitis or moderate endoscopic colitis, 
those that had the deep extensive ulcerations were more prone to go on and develop a refractory course that mandated colectomy. So Gary, that's the endoscopic appearance. What about the histology when you take biopsies? Does that help us make any predictions about patient course? Well, absolutely. Um, it's not only what we see with the scope, but it's what's within the bowel wall itself. And the histology is an important factor. It's more predictive of the future. And several studies have looked at this. One of the classic studies by Riley, published in early 1990, 1991, showed when looking at acute inflammatory cell infiltrate, mucin depletion, and crypt abscesses and breaches in the surface epithelium, that the first three were predictive of individuals having a more likelihood of having disease reoccur in the future. In other words, they would flare in the future if they've had these endoscopically on the biopsy. So we have tools now, not only endoscopically, but also histologically that we can use to tell our patients of their likelihood of the future being more virulent. Well, that's terrific information. So, so Miguel, with what Gary said in mind, you're now faced with a patient. What are your treatment goals when a patient with moderate severe ulcerative colitis walks into your office? So I think the treatment goals are a few. One, we want to induce a remission. Two, we want to maintain that remission. But as Gary alluded to, we also want to heal the bowel. And we'll probably talk a little bit more about this, but that treat to target, treat to mucosal healing. To Gary's point, just to also make this, um, whether or not we are treating to histologic normalcy, that's an area of controversy. But we do want to make the bowel look better when we do a colonoscopy. We know that that will lead to less surgery, better quality of life, improved nutrition. So those are really the key features in terms of treatment. So, Ms. Gell, you, you refer to treatment very often, and Gary's shown us some of the importance in treating endoscopically and histologically to remission. Well, what are the treatment options when faced with a patient with ulcerative colitis? The treatment options for ulcerative colitis, you've already alluded to a couple, the five aminosalicylates and the corticosteroids. We have this treatment paradigm, or I should say treatment pyramid, that we've looked at for ulcerative colitis. And 5-ASAs and prednisone are still first line. I think we all agree with that. All three of us practice very similarly in that fashion. However, it's the patient, the more aggressive patient, that may require an immunomodulator, 6-MPAs, thyprin, maybe methotrexate, but then the biologic treatments and moving up that cascade of treatment for patients, especially with more aggressive disease. Oh, terrific. So, you know, Gary, this has been a very interesting past few years because after a many-year delay, we all of a sudden have a bunch of new biological therapies for patients with moderate severe ulcerative colitis. Can you tell us a little bit about those? So the biologics, Russell, as you've alluded to, have really been transformational. They've treated, allowed us to treat patients in a fashion such that they have better outcomes. The first agent that gained regulatory approval for treatment of ulcerative colitis, it was a biologic, was infliximab, and subsequently came adalimumab, golimumab, and vedolizumab. Um, adalimumab functions to inhibit TNF, similar to infliximab. It's a subcutaneously administered medication. And golimumab, which gained regulatory approval one year after adalimumab in 2013, uh, is also subcutaneous. So these two agents are anti-TNF. The most recent addition to our medical armamentarium has been vetalizumab, and this gained regulatory approval in 2014. The mechanism whereby this operates is unique. 
It's an alpha-4 beta-7 integrin antagonist. So it inhibits lymphocytes from going into the bowel directly. It is unique and it functions well to function to lessen the inflammation and improve the quality of life and achieve all the goals that we've seen for patients with active ulcerative colitis. So, so Gary, you mentioned the anti-TNF therapies. So first, can you remind us about the efficacy of infliximab in patients with moderate severe ulcerative colitis? So the classic study that you're referring to is called the ACT study, Russell, and this was a study published back 2005. There were two such studies, ACT-1 and ACT-2. Uh, these were large multicenter international studies that looked at active treatment with infliximab versus placebo, and the endpoints looked at were clinically meaningful, clinical response, clinical remission, and mucosal healing. About two-thirds of patients could achieve a clinical response when they were treated with infliximab eight weeks after the induction was started. The clinical remission was in about a third of patients, and mucosal healing was in over 50% of patients. So this was a very aggressive treatment at the time, but worked beautifully, and it's now become part of our standard medical armamentarium. So that was the data on infliximab. What about adalimumab? Similar to infliximab, adalimumab is effective in treating patients with active ulcerative colitis. And the study that led to regulatory approval was the ULTRA-1 study. Prospective, randomized, again double-blind, placebo-controlled, clinical response, clinical remission, and mucosal healing were superior to placebo. So once again, this is subcutaneously administered. This was the first subcutaneous medication that we could give to treat active ulcerative colitis. It was biologic in nature. And now the newest uh, agent in the anti-TNF class to gain approval for moderate severe ulcerative colitis is golimumab. Many of our listeners may not be as familiar with golimumab. What was their data? So golimumab is an effective agent as well to treat active ulcerative colitis. It, like adalimumab, is subcutaneous. The endpoint of the trial was six weeks. And again, the same endpoints were achieved. Clinical remission in over 50% of patients, clinical and over clinical response in over 50%, clinical remission was superior to placebo, and mucosal healing in over 40% of patients. Impressive endpoints, good effective therapy for patients that have failed conventional agents to start with. So all three of the anti-TNFs have data for response, remission, and mucosal healing. Miguel, what about the newer family, the anti-integrin antibodies? Can you tell us about vetalizumab? I think vetalizumab represents probably one of the most exciting breakthroughs in the treatment of IBD and specifically for ulcerative colitis. Uh, the reason I say that, there was a Gemini 1 study that was published by Fagan in New England Journal of Medicine in 2013. You mentioned with the anti-TNFs, this also looked at clinical response, clinical remission, and mucosal healing. It's given intravenously, but the remission and response rates were superior to placebo but also the mucosal healing. So nearly 40% of patients had mucosal healing with vetalizumab in the Gemini 1 study. So very effective, very exciting agent. And I also think safety is quite good with vetalizumab because it seems to be gut specific. It doesn't circulate the way some of the others do. So, you know, Miguel, Gary actually told us a lot about endoscopic, even histologic healing. You're talking about mucosal healing. What outcomes have we seen with mucosal healing? 
This new uh, shift, if you will, in our treatment from the treat of response and symptoms to treat to target mucosal healing is quite important. And we've learned this from the rheumatologists with rheumatoid arthritis. What does that mean, Russ? That means that if we can heal the mucosa, heal the bowel, we see decreased rates of hospitalization, decreased rates of cancer, decreased rates of surgery, and overall an improvement in the quality of life that we really haven't seen before. So healing the bowel is important. Mucosal healing is a, a very important endpoint. Okay, so, so gentlemen, we're in a situation where you talked about a few good drugs, all the good data. Gary, what are the risk first benefits that you might consider when you're seeing patients with moderate severe ulcerative colitis and whom you might start one of these agents? So that's an excellent point, Russell. Whenever we see patients, we always think of what's the risk of treatment versus untreatment, and what's the risk of the medication? Does the risk, the risk outweigh the benefit? And I think we've recognized there are certain populations we might avoid, for example, anti-TNF therapy. Individuals with certain neurologic diseases, for example, multiple sclerosis, we've avoided the use of anti-TNF therapy, given this can worsen the multiple sclerosis. Patients with prior tuberculosis might be an example where we might consider use of a different mechanism than TNF itself. And the main adverse events we have to look at as it relates to the drugs used. Nasopharyngitis was commonly seen with the alpha-4 beta-7 integrin inhibitor vetalizumab. So these are the classic risk benefits that we look at in all patients with all diseases uh, as it relates to the medical therapy versus not treating with that specific therapy. Miguel, do you have anything to add to what Gary said? I, I agree, and I think these are all uniquely positioned. You have two uh, anti-TNF subcutaneous, so the golibumab, adalibumab for adherence. There are some patients, maybe that makes more sense. Then the intravenous uh, infliximab anti-TNF, and then as Gary said, the IV vetalizumab. And I completely agree. If we have patients who are at high risk for cancer or high risk for uh, lymphoma uh, or infection, maybe we're going to favor something more like a vetalizumab. Okay. Well, Gary and Miguel, thank you for taking us through that discussion. You know, the key point is that patients with moderate severe ulcerative colitis who fail standard therapy now have treatment options that allow for a clinical response, clinical remission, and mucosal healing, all which are associated with positive outcomes for your patients. So, now let's focus back on our patient, Ms. S. She's a 23-year-old female with moderate severe ulcerative colitis. She is symptomatic with active disease on colonoscopy despite standard therapy. She was started on infliximab and had initial remission, but eight months after treatment, she had a relapse. Her infectious workup was negative and colonoscopy revealed moderate to severe ulcerative colitis. Tests for CMV and C. diff were negative, but she's fearful of surgery. So she wants to discuss other treatment options. Before we talk about what we would do, let's find out what our audience would do given her loss of response to infliximab. You will see a polling question on your screen. So let me ask you, our audience, what would you recommend for Ms. S to treat her ulcerative colitis given the loss of response to infliximab? Would you A, obtain therapeutic drug and antibody levels? B, switch immediately to a second-line anti-TNF agent? C, switch immediately to a second-line agent that's not an anti-TNF agent? Or D, I don't know. 
So please provide your answers now, and we'll discuss your responses shortly. So, Gary, people talk about primary failure, secondary failure. Can you lead us through a discussion about what exactly these terms mean? Surely. And these are important factors to distinguish. A primary failure is someone who receives medication and doesn't respond initially, whereas a secondary failure is one who does have a response initially or remission and then loses that benefit. So then, again, a primary non-response, can you give us a clear definition of that? So to be more specific, we look for a lack of improvement of clinical signs or symptoms uh, at the time of induction therapy. Um, the time to assess that with anti-TNF therapy is typically four weeks at the end of the course of induction, but recognize that you may need to wait six to 12 weeks until the drug has therapeutic benefit. So it's not a week or two, uh, but it's longer after that period of time. And one might then consider dose adjustment if you get a partial response to a higher dose, dose escalation, if you would, depending upon the specific agent being evaluated. So that's a, a primary non-responder. Miguel, what about a, a someone who secondary loses response to their therapy? So a secondary loss of response or non-responder really is the case I think we're discussing here. Somebody who did well initially and now loses response. And there may be a few reasons that we see a secondary loss of response. So for example, patients who develop antibodies against the drug, this, uh, this concept of immunogenicity. Um, Antidrug antibodies probably occur with all of the monoclonal antibodies that Gary went through with the anti-TNFs and probably with betalizumab. And then we're seeing a higher rate of clearance, so the drug's leaving the body more quickly. So these, these are three initial reasons that we may look at. And as we understand each personalized, individualized approach in terms of pharmacokinetics, pharmacodynamics, we, we realize now that this may not lead to the effect of concentrations that Gary was mentioning. Maybe we do need higher drug. Uh, and especially with ulcerative colitis, we see these sick inpatients who come in with a very high C-reactive protein or a low albumin, and they clear drug, this what we call tnf sync, at least for the anti-TNFs, and they just lose this drug very quickly. They clear it quickly from the body. So these are some of the reasons that we see we also know that if we use concomitant immunomodulators, we may actually decrease immunogenicity, improve the level of drug, decrease drug clearance, and then ultimately we have to say, are the symptoms in this Miss S case that you mentioned, is she actually flaring? Well, you said she had a flex sig that showed active colitis, but sometimes the symptoms can come from C. diff or irritable bowel, so we have to be aware of that as well, and not always assume that a loss of response is because there's active disease. So those are some reasons. And Russell, one of the things we've now learned is that there's actually ability to measure anti-TNF in the stool. And to Miguel's yep. point, we can measure that people that have very active disease and low serum albumins have more infliximab, for example, in the stool. So they have gut permeability and they lose it in the stool, hence they don't get adequate serum levels to achieve a state of response or remission. So like we're gonna measure stool with microbiome, we can do this with anti-TNFs, and not to be gross, we'll probably be mailing stool throughout the country and measuring this in different labs. So I agree completely with, with what Gary said. Well, thanks for the warning. I'll be sure to check my postage, see who sent it to me before <laughs> opening that box. 
So let's let's bring let's go back to Miss S. So and our audience response questions because it was very fascinating what the results were. We asked our audience what they would do after her loss of response to infliximab, and the results are the following: thirty-five percent said they would a obtain the therapeutic drug at antibody levels. Twenty-two percent said they would switch now to an anti a second line anti TNF. 23%, virtually the same, said we'd switch to a second-line agent that's not an anti-TNF agent, and 19% said, I don't know. Gary, what do you think about these results? Pretty close, huh? I, I think it's interesting. I think the therapeutic drug monitoring, we can talk about that more, but that's something that's just coming into fruition, and we do have other options. If someone doesn't respond to a mechanism and they have adequate levels, one might think of another class of drug. I agree with some of these answers, and I understand the rationale for them. Miguel, I mean, is this yeah, why we're so, doing this program? Yeah, well, <laughs> you just took the words out of my mouth. So I think there's still a lot of confusion. Um, the fact 19% don't know is important, but the fact that you split between the other three answers I think is really important. And so I think that um, in days of old, meaning prior to therapeutic drug monitoring, um, I would agree that switching to another anti-TNF probably would what we would have done. So patient responded infliximab, loses response, and maybe uh, switching out of uh, it to another anti-TNF. I think now, though, that with the therapeutic drug monitoring profile that we have, at least for infliximab and adalimumab, and probably to come with the other agents, this personalized approach that the two of you mentioned will really be an enhanced way of us treating these patients, measuring levels, measuring antibodies, and then making a decision. So. Personally, even though it's split, I'd probably go with A, uh, meaning measure levels, but I can understand the confusion. So, Miguel, can you, like, lead us through what goes to your mind when faced with the patients in a similar situation? There have been some good algorithms published on this, and one of them has come from a, a study or an adaptation by Kana et al., and I, I really like that because I think the algorithm is fairly clear-cut, and this is how I practice. So, in, in essence, you have Miss S., She's losing response. I would check levels, antibody levels, and check the measurement of the drug, the infliximab. If she has a therapeutic infliximab level, meaning she has good drug, that's probably somebody that giving another anti-TNF isn't going to help. However, if she has a low concentration of infliximab or a subtherapeutic concentration, then antibodies become very important. Does she have antibodies against drug, which means probably giving more of the infliximab won't matter. We have to switch to something else and probably within class would be reasonable. Adalibumab, golibumab. If she has a low level of antibodies and just doesn't have enough infliximab, and Gary said this before, I think we just give more drug, she'll probably improve. One, one key point to this though that I wanna be practical about, Russ, and, and Gary, I know you and I talked about this earlier, these are expensive tests for some patients, so we have to weigh the cost into this. But the therapeutic drug monitoring would be the way to go, in my opinion. Well, you know, one area we're actually pushing some of the companies that make these drugs to consider throwing in the therapeutic monitoring or saying to insurers, you know, these are expensive drugs, maybe you should cover the therapeutic drug monitoring because while the tests may be expensive, the drugs can be so costly that even one dose unnecessarily given in many cases, will cover the cost of the test itself. I could not agree more, and I think that would be a beautiful day when we can bundle the therapeutic drug levels with the drug itself, 
and that's really the personalized medicine we're all looking for. And, and it's that, actually yeah. been shown to be cost effective, not yet mm -hmm. published in paper form, but presented at national meetings. The Taxit study by Dr. Rutgers and his group in Belgium has shown that this is something that will be a cost-effective strategy, therapeutic drug monitoring. Dr. Velayos has published a cost analysis and showed as well with Dr. Sanborn that individuals who do therapeutic monitoring will save overall cost. So these are things I think in a cost-conscious society we have to be cognizant that these are things we should be doing for our patients. Yeah, and I believe that we'll be seeing tests uh, developed for the other biologics that currently don't have available testing of drug levels and or antibodies and then really have the ability to uh, look for each of the agents you know that we have. I agree. I think that'd be wonderful. So now we're talking all about this hypothetically but Gary is there any data that, suge that suggests that monitoring antibodies or drug levels actually can be associated with outcomes? So to put some mortar into the uh, discussion that was given to us by Miguel which was terrific um, and I think I follow the same general concept. Dr. Sanborn, Dr. Afif published data retrospectively looking at their experience with infliximab and measuring antibody to infliximab directly. So about three-quarters of all patients uh, that had testing were demonstrated to have an impact from the treatment. So once again, supporting the concept and the notion that we have suggested. When we look at individuals that had subtherapeutic infliximab and switched an anti-TNF, the response was such that uh, they didn't do as well as if they did dose escalation. 86% had partial complete response versus 33% directly. If there was therapeutic infliximab and no evidence of active inflammation, then one has to think of a different mechanism perhaps irritable bowel, lactose intolerance, C. diff, whatever the notion of the disease-like symptoms may come from. And then if antibody is positive, it's time to bail from that therapy. Switch to another anti-TNF or switch mechanisms of disease. 92% versus 17% in that study did well with that strategy directly. So we have some data that backs up our thought process. So, so the idea being that if you did well with one mechanism of action and you only lost response because of antibodies, then you should stay within that mechanism of action. However, if you really didn't even do that well with that uh, mechanism of action, perhaps it's time to change to a different, different mechanism. And, I, and I'd say to put it another way, because I agree completely, if you never responded from the start, primary failure, or the patient who has good drug levels of that anti-TNF, maybe switching to another one wouldn't help because then you're just going to give a different drug and giving more or a different drug in that same class doesn't matter. Yeah, and I do want to emphasize always verify non-response with um, checking C. diff and CMV in your patients. Absolutely. So let's go back to Ms. S. So we checked her levels of her, and her infliximab were in fact very low, but she did not have antibodies to infliximab. So she was dose increased at 10 milligrams per kilogram. And many of the clinical trials that we have in the biologics, that's exactly what happens. Patients were escalated to the higher dose. And you may actually include that information if you have to convince an insurer uh, to go along with the plan. Well, I think that this has been a very clinically useful discussion. I hope you agree. I, the key messages from today uh, from this uh, segment at least, are that patients who fail to have an initial response to a biologic are considered primary non-responders. Those who actually do respond well but then lose response are secondary non-responders. 
in both cases, it's important to exclude infection and prove they have inflammation. Also, the colitis, that's just for doing a flex-sig. And if therapeutic drug monitoring is available for the agent they're on, this can help direct you about whether you should escalate the dose, stay within class, or in fact, switch to a different class. We're gonna focus on maintenance treatment of ulcerative colitis in this session. We have a patient case to present to you. Miss S is a 23-year-old female with moderate severe ulcerative colitis. She's symptomatic with active disease on colonoscopy despite standard therapy. She was started on infliximab and had an initial remission, but eight months afterwards, she had a relapse. Therapeutic drug monitoring revealed no antibodies to infliximab, but a low infliximab concentration, so her dose was then increased from five to 10 milligrams per kilogram, given every eight weeks. So, let's see what our audience would do in this scenario we have our patient who has infliximab. She's now on 10 milligrams per kilogram, but then she subsequently now loses response again. She has no antibodies. You do the therapeutic drug monitoring. In fact, she has a good level of infliximab this time. Infectious workup is negative. You check with a Flexig, and sure enough, there it is, moderate severe ulcerative colitis. 10 milligrams per kilogram, Plenty of drug, no antibody, active disease, no infection. So the question to the audience is, now, what would your course of treatment be for Ms. S? Would you A, switch her to golimumab or adalimumab from infliximab? B, switch from infliximab to vetalizumab? C, recommend surgery? Or D, allow four to six more weeks for the higher dose infliximab response? Please vote now. Miguel, what is the data for maintenance therapy with anti-TNFs in ulcerative colitis? Maintenance therapy, we talked about induction, and Gary went through the inductive trials through with the three anti-TNFs. And it's interesting that the maintenance treatment that looked at about a year for all three, infliximab, adalimumab, golimumab, for clinical response, clinical remission, and mucosal healing, all of them look similar. Now, there's no comparative efficacy data, and let me just throw that out there now. So even though we may present bars on the same graph, this is in head-to-head -head studies, but what we see is, is similar results, meaning 35 to 45%, up to 50%, have a response at one year. They're maintaining response. About uh, 25 to a third of patients are actually maintaining a remission. But actually, most importantly, as you brought up earlier, Russ, this mucosal healing, a third to just under half of the patients on all three anti-TNFs were able to maintain a mucosal healing, or not only just maintain clinical remission, but mucosal healing as well. So I think that's important. Gary, you, you agree with what the slide is showing you, that the, any of the three agents, if they're working well, seem to maintain these results? Absolutely. I think we're in an era where we treat to target. And the mucosal healing, as Miguel and you have highlighted, is important. We treat that patient directly. We follow the CRP when it comes to disease. We look at the parameters clinically, uh, endoscopically, take a look. That patient does well. They'll do quite well. So these are drugs that not only are effective to treat active disease, but it holds on to it, which is arguably one of the most important factors we have to look at. Okay, so if we're checking drug levels, Miguel, 
are they correlated with efficacy in these patients who yeah, we're trying I mean, to maintain? I, they are. Um, and I think that the studies have all shown that if you have an adequate or a good concentration of a, a drug, that improves outcomes. Decreased surgery, decreased hospitalization, and ulcerative colitis, decreased cancer, improved quality of life. So all of these, the better the concentration, the better the level in the blood, the better the patient does. So I think that, you know, that's something, and I think all of us practice in the same way. We measure these levels. It's just the challenge, like you presented, Russ, is what do you do when they have a good level and they're still not responding? Okay. Well, let's see what the audience said, what we would do with Miss S. So the question is, should be up on your slide. So 23% people said that they would switch from the high-dose infliximab to either golimumab or adalimumab. 44% said they would switch from infliximab to vetalizumab. 2% said they'd recommend surgery, so perhaps the two surgeons in the group. <laughs> and 31% said they'd allow four to six more weeks for infliximab response. Gary, what do you think about this? I think we have a patient that had a initial response. They lost response. There was dose escalation. There's adequate time that has been given for this to uh, benefit and uh, it's time to the old saying is fish are cut bait. It's time to cut bait with that agent directly and to go on to another agent. You have to think of what's the likeliest scenario that a patient will respond and you've optimized treatment with anti-TNF therapy in that particular agent. I would switch mechanisms at this point and go for vetalizumab. Okay, so Miguel, let's go back to Miss S. So you have your shared decision model discussions. What did you decide to do with her? So after a discussion, essentially what Gary said, you know, she has good drug levels of infliximab, so we switch her to vetalizumab. We switch her out of class, 300 milligrams at zero, two, and six weeks, which is the standard induction course. And she actually has done well. But, but if I can, I want to make one response to that uh, audience response, because I actually found that interesting. I agree with what Gary said. I would do the same thing. But I think it tells us something very interesting and maybe a gap in knowledge in terms of what we're seeing, meaning that it's interesting that there were about 25%, I remember, switched to golimumab or adalimumab despite having good drug levels of infliximab. And another group, that D group, that said, just give the infliximab more time. So it's interesting that we're used to the anti-TNFs, we're comfortable, we've grown up on them, to hang on to them, either switching or giving more time is interesting, where I agree with Gary. I think this is a patient that we probably need to switch out of class. To me, vetalizumab was the right answer, and fortunately, she's done well. Right. So, you know, I think, Miguel, you bring up a good point that over 50% of people responded that they would actually keep the person on the high-dose therapy that they're failing uh, and you would really want to see a response rather quickly in these people. And that tells me a couple things. One, people are comfortable with uh, what they're used to, and that also the therapeutic drug monitoring message. So, Russ, maybe at a future one of these we can talk about that more because there seems to be a lot of confusion. So why would you have a patient with good level of drug, no antibodies, and you just say, I'm going to give it more time, but you told us the Flexig showed active disease. So there's a knowledge gap there, and I just find that interesting, and that's why hopefully we do these things. And yeah. this, this is an evolving area. There are no formalized guidelines yet established for doing therapeutic drug monitoring, and we're learning with the different trials as the information comes. So it's more in its infancy. Other subspecialties have not embraced this as we have. Rheumatology, for example, this is not something that's routinely mm -hmm. done. 
So we're setting the pace for the rest of the areas, and I think we need to do this in a responsible and appropriate way to do so. So education is part of the forefront that we have a responsibility to do once we learn the data. Well, I agree with you entirely, Gary. And, you know, I think one question that may come through the mind as people were answering this question is, well, do we really have any data in people who failed to prior enter TNF that the vitalizumab would work? So that's, that's a very important question as it relates quite well to this particular uh, patient we're talking about. <clears throat> and when you actually look at the study that was done, the Gemini study, uh, that was looked at directly to see patients that had prior anti-TNF versus those that didn't. And at the uh, initial time, six weeks, those that had prior anti-TNF failure, which could be primary failure or secondary failure, 39% uh, achieved a state of uh, remission versus 52 weeks, it was about one-third were in a state of remission. So if you achieve a remission early on with drug, one can do so, whether they failed or they have not failed an anti-TNF agent. And well, what if their failure to an anti-TNF agent was an allergic reaction to the infusion? The vetalizumab is given as an infusion. Might there be a problem with that drug too? Well, it's a different class. So there could be side effects that translate from anti-TNFs to a different anti-TNF. Uh, but when we look at vetalizumab maintenance, those people, whether they had failed or had not failed, whether they were on every four or every eight weeks therapy with vetalizumab, did gain benefit compared to placebo at week 52 in the ulcerative colitis population. Yeah, and I think also that in the patients who have uh, switched to other anti-TNFs, if they've had an allergic reaction to one, it's been safe to switch to another. Correct. So Gary, you showed us um, information about patients who failed an anti-TNF and then went to vetalizumab. What about the overall vetalizumab maintenance data? Well, this is information that we have, and overall vetalizumab is effective to main maintain an effective treatment for patients that have had active disease. So you get that patient in remission with vetalizumab, you want to maintain them on therapy. We recognize from the anti-TNF literature that if you have a patient who is in remission and you stop that medical therapy, specifically looking more at Crohn's, that about 50% of patients will reflare within a year. So maintenance therapy is an important treatment paradigm that we have. You know, Gary, it's interesting you brought up the Crohn's disease um, point. This uh, case has been an ulcerative colitis, but Miguel, is there really any major differences in what we've talked about so far with monitoring these patients, deciding when to switch antibodies in someone who has Crohn's disease versus our patient who had ulcerative colitis? You know, I think that in the, the next decade, we're used to lumping Crohn's and ulcerative colitis as two separate diseases, and we all know this, but we see a spectrum of disease across them. So from a therapeutic standpoint, aside from surgery, which we didn't talk about Crohn's of the perianal area or colon where maybe surgery would leave the patient with an ostomy. The armamentarium of treatments we have, anti-TNFs, now vetalizumab is an alpha-4, beta-7, would be used for either. So we look at them similarly in terms of our treatments. But, so, but the algorithms and the antibody testing, Gary, would that be the same whether the patient had ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease, the messages about 
staying in class or switching classes? I think so, and, and we've now have been better at prognosticating, though, in Crohn's, and we might treat up front earlier with biologic therapy when someone has more virulent disease. If they present with perianal disease fistulas, we might go to uh, biologic therapy earlier on in the course of their disease. With ulcerative colitis, we're in our infancy at determining that. And we know the deep ulcerations, the severe hospitalized patient who comes in, we might then go to biologic therapy up front. But other than that, it's more a step-up approach. You earn your stripes from failing prior therapy, the mesalamines initially. And many patients do quite well on mesalamine therapy and don't need biologics. So the monitoring is the same. It's a template. One disease is similar to the other as it relates to the therapeutic drug monitoring. Yeah, that, so that's all I was going to add, is that to drive home your point about therapeutic drug monitoring between the two diseases at this time, there's no difference. We, somebody who's losing response will still get the same levels. Now, just to make it clear, today, as we sit here today, commercially available therapeutic drug monitoring is only available for infliximab or adalibumab. But I agree with the statement, Russ, that you made, there probably will be the same for the others. But whether it's Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, today, based on what we have, we would do the same thing with drug monitoring. You, you know, some uh, <clears throat> physicians ask me, well, if I have a patient who's very, very heavy, should I use an infusible versus an injectable? Um, do you guys have any opinions about that? Yeah, so that, you know, there, you're getting into the um, unknown world of pharmacokinetics, which is interesting. There may be gender differences. There may be weight differences. So somebody who has a very lean body mass, body mass index underweight, very low, is going to possibly react very differently to somebody who's morbidly obese. Um, we didn't talk about it here, but obesity and IBD is becoming another problem. And these patients may have higher need of anti-TNF. They actually, the adipose tissue may make TNF. They may need a higher dose based on the fat tissue, but based on the fact that they're a bigger body weight. So these are really, you're bringing up some very important concepts in this therapeutic drug monitoring world that we're living in terms of other factors, uh, environmental, uh, weight, gender, that type of thing. So we actually published some data yeah. on that, Miguel. And it was interesting, about a third of patients we saw presented as having a high body mass index, um, and they had more virulent disease. So this is something that uh, has not been studied prospectively in any randomized fashion, but it's a big question. The other special interest group is the elderly. When we look at the elderly, they're more prone to develop side effects from medications. So we recognize that combination therapy is not something we're as eager to use. In other words, anti-metabolite therapy plus in the biologics together. We often choose biologics alone, if you would, because of the potential side effects. Azathioprine and 6-MP have been shown to have higher risk of lymphoma in patients over the age of 50, 65 in particular. So this is something that's important to recognize and tailor the medicine to the risk. So, you know, Gary brings up a good point about combination therapy in the elderly, but Miguel, what about your standard patient? What about, what's the benefit of giving combination therapy? Yeah, so this is, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that we've been discussing the biologics but really didn't get into how we practice, what we do in our own practices. So to that point, Russ, um, uh, for the most part, and I'll give caveats, for the most part, with all of the biologics, the anti-TNFs and vedolizumab, 
I personally am using a combination approach. Now, vedolizumab in the North American studies only used as a monotherapy without 6-MP, without azathioprine, without methotrexate. In Europe, they were allowed to use combination. But because it's a monoclonal antibody and because you brought up this immunogenicity antibody drug monitoring, we think that they're going to develop antibodies. So when I start some invitalizumab or the anti-TNFs, I use combination. Now, to your point specifically, young males, um, and, and Gary alluded to this too with elderly, young males may be more susceptible to these non-Hodgkin's lymphoma with the thiopurine, 6-MPAs of thiopurine. Still very rare. I still use azathioprine 6-MP in that group of patients. However, I've been using more methotrexate as the combination agent to prevent the antibodies, especially in young males. And I agree completely with what Gary said. If it's an elderly patient, I'm more likely to use one single agent rather than two. Right. I think that it's important that we actually also consider that we uh, add the patient in the discussion. I mean, putting in what their mm -hmm. what their fears are as far as uh, the therapies. Methotrexate is definitely underutilized. However, alcohol intake has to be minimal and uh, certainly cannot get pregnant on it, uh, which is a big issue in our young patients. Uh, pregnancy has to be terminated with methotrexate. So I think it is important when we talk to the patient to have a balance about what are the true risks, what are the risks of undertreating or not treating, what are the rest of steroids, which is kind of the, the old go-to, and also whether we talked about injectables versus infusables, are they going to be compliant? Are they going to take the injections? If they weren't taking their pills, are they going to do it? Are they going to be able to come in for the infusions? So I think we had a really great discussion about this. Miguel, can you kind of give us like a broad uh, approach to your overall uh, treatment of these patients when they are sitting in front of you with their family asking you the questions? Right. So again, I think the, um, the concept of we want to make you feel better. So when the family's there, the patient's better. We want to make you feel better, return to school, return to work. But we also want to have what we consider a sustained disease control, this treat to target. So in the past, we've talked about clinical response to treatments. While that's important, when we move the bar to saying, you know what, we really want to put you into remission, a clinical remission. Now, this concept of treat to mucosal healing. Not only do we want to make you feel better, we want to heal the bowel and limit steroids as much as humanly possible. And as you said, taking an individualized, um, more shared approach with the patient in terms of risks and benefits, but that sustained disease control, that deep remission is important. Okay. Well, Gary and Miguel, thank you for that discussion. Let's review the key points for our discussion on maintenance treatment in patients with ulcerative colitis. The anti-TNF therapies are effective in maintaining patients with ulcerative colitis. Vetalizumab, the anti-integrin therapy, is also effective in maintaining patients with ulcerative colitis. Patients who fail a biologic and have antibodies should move on to either within the class if they did well with that class before or to a new class if they never did well. And patients who had high levels of drug and no antibody would typically would change class. Sustaining remission is our ultimate goal. So I want to thank you, Gary and Miguel, for joining me today. And on behalf of CME Outfitters, I'm Dr. Russell Cohen. I hope you are able to incorporate these strategies we have discussed today into improved care for your patients. Please stick around for our after the show segment, which will be starting in approximately two minutes. 
So if you have a question about the case we presented today, or if you have your own case, please call us, email us, or fax us, and we'll be back to discuss them shortly. You can call us at 800-322-3487, or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com, or use the questions tab on your screen. You can also fax us at 614-448-4476. We'll be back in two minutes to start addressing those questions. For a full listing of additional activities and resources in IBD, please visit www.cmeoutfitters.com. Thank you for joining us, and I hope we were able to help you improve the care for your patients. We'll be back in two minutes.
Okay, so welcome to our After the Show segment where we are going to address the questions that you asked during our show. Uh, we had a number of excellent questions that came in and what I'm going to do is going to split them up between Gary and Miguel and see uh, what their responses are and encourage them also to comment too. So Miguel, the first question I got is, well, we talked about mucosal healing, but you did mention about whether it uh, decreased colon cancer risk. What are your thoughts on that matter? I think one of the important uh, factors in terms of developing dysplasia or colon cancer in our patients with ulcerative colitis is this uncontrolled long-term inflammation. So in the body, anything that's inflamed for a long time will either scar or develop cancer. So by healing the mucosa, and to your question or to the audience question, healing the mucosa will decrease colorectal cancer. We've seen that with the mesalamine products, and my anticipation is we'll see that with the biologics as well. Okay. And it's interesting, the British Society of Gastroenterology now, Russell, has incorporated into their guidelines in every five-year surveillance for those that heal the mucosa. This has not yet been embraced by the United States, but perhaps future studies will be able to prognosticate who has significant inflammation and who has no inflammation. But at this point in time, we don't advocate doing what they do. We still recommend the standard recommendations to do surveillance colonoscopic evaluations in patients that have at least eight years of disease. Right. I think it's important that we give a little time for the recommendations to see what course they might take. So, Gary, there was questions about doing therapeutic drug monitoring. We spent a lot of the time on the, in our program about that. But this uh, listener asked still about costs. It said, doesn't that just increase the cost of taking care of these patients? So it's a very important question. And whenever we look at costs, Russell, we have to look at costs for a test versus all long-term costs. So if we use a test to determine that a therapy is underdosed, and that person who has underdosing, for example, gets hospitalized uh, and needs surgery because they didn't have adequate dose, then that's a dosing effect. By increasing that, you then can get them to a therapeutic level. And in evaluating that, I referred to a study that done by Fernando Velayos and Bill Sanborn, and they did a model to see is it cost-effective. And this was deemed to be a cost-effective approach to do therapeutic monitoring. Also, Paul Rutgertz and his group in Leuven, Belgium, presented at the European meetings the TAXIT study. And they did therapeutic monitoring in a subset of patients and found that this was clearly beneficial and cost-saving. So the cost up front, it's not cheap, but it may save costs long-term. Yeah, and I think we also mentioned in the program, too, that the medicines themselves, their cost, their drug cost is so high that if you just change one person from a medication or prevented a dose increase that you shouldn't have had, you'd probably easily cover the costs and probably a reach out to the insurers to say you actually should cover drug monitoring because it should clearly end up uh, decreasing unnecessary cost layouts for drugs that aren't going to work in people. So, Miguel, someone watching must know, must know one of your loves. They asked about any data on these agents in Crohn's disease to prevent Crohn's disease recurrence after surgery. So, let's say an ileocecectomy with a primary anastomosis. Um, you're right. So, that's an area I'm interested in. Uh, there have been a number of studies looking at post-operative prevention. And just to put this into context, as the audience probably knows, 
when you do a resection and an anastomosis, 70 to 90 percent of patients at a year will already have Crohn's disease coming back in that segment, usually right above the anastomosis in the ileum. So the question is, how can we decrease that to prevent more surgery? There have been a number, our, our center published some data in 2009 looking at infliximab, but there have been a number of infliximab and adalibumab studies with both of those anti-TNFs in preventing Crohn's disease. Then there's a larger study that was done uh, called the POKER study with adalibumab, and then we'll be presenting data at DDW on the PREVENT study with infliximab. But so far to date, the biologics look to be effective at preventing post-op Crohn's, but we're selecting the group of patients who are at highest risk. We're not just giving this to all patients who have surgery. So if they've had multiple surgeries or fistulizing, penetrating disease, smokers, those might be groups that we would target. Okay. You know, Gary, Miguel showed a very nice treatment pyramid and talked about the step-up approach and then top-down. And what some people are worried to say, well, if I start with a biologic therapy, aren't I going to run out of options too soon in my 20-year-old patient? So it's important to recognize there's the old tune-up of the car that we have. Uh, you have a car, it gets old, uh, it's five years old, you don't throw it out because it doesn't necessarily work. You get a tune-up, you fix it up. And not that these are old, but if you're on infliximab, for example, and your medication is doing well, and you suddenly have someone flare, you round up the usual suspects. You look for the reason as to why that might occur. If the level is low, you have antibodies, you might change something there. Uh, if you have someone that has C. diff or CMV. But there's a natural fallout rate, Miguel and his group published, mm -hmm. uh, that you do lose response over time. But you have many different agents, and as the pharmacologic medical armamentarium expands, we foresee new drugs on the horizon. So we recognize that surgery is not a cure, as it was stated for many years for ulcerative colitis. There are many complications that ensue, and not to say it's not appropriate for the right population, but we often try to embrace medical therapy and treat patients with that in an effort to improve their quality of life and make them forget they have the disease. Miguel, you know, you, t you showed some good data on betalizumab, but many of the listeners aren't quite understanding the mechanism of action behind an anti-integrant antibody. Can you perhaps just go through that briefly? Um, I think because it's complicated in the sense that we are not familiar. So just to recap, it's an alpha-4 beta-7 integrin antagonist. What does that mean simply? And when I describe this to the patient... The gastrointestinal tract, if you imagine the blood cells of the gastrointestinal tract, and somebody with ulcerative colitis or Crohn's, they leak a lot of these inflammatory cells, these white blood cells, leukocytes and lymphocytes. In essence, an anti-integrin works to prevent the Velcro, prevent the stickiness of the white blood cells that stick to the lining of the blood vessels that leak into the gastrointestinal tract. So by preventing the white cells, preventing the lymphocytes, the leukocytes to trap again, if you will, is important. One key part, and just to reemphasize this, vetalizumab seems to be gut-specific. So when we give it intravenous, it seems to hone in on the gastrointestinal mucosa. Gary mentioned in his part, nasopharyngeal may uptake as well. But that seems to be the main areas that this drug works on in preventing the white cells from getting into the gastrointestinal lining. That ultimately leads to inflammation. Okay. That's a very helpful description. Um, you know, a number of the 
questions we got also concerned safety and lymphoma in particular. And some listeners stated, I'm hearing or seeing commercials and claims of lymphoma risks. So Gary, maybe if you can just let us know, lymphoma risks with, in patients with inflammatory bowel disease on anti-TNF alone, what is our best estimate at, that po at this point? So, so it's not very clear, Russell. I mean, the main driver of lymphoma is what most of us believe is the azathioprine and 6-mercaptopurine. And there's an article forthcoming that we have in clinical gastroenterology and hepatology that's a meta-analysis of the literature. And as Miguel had pointed out, under the age of 30, the standard incidence ratio is 6.99. So it's about sevenfold under the age of 30. It's about fourfold for the general population in population cohort studies. Over the age of 50, the risk goes up. It's one in 350 patient years of follow-up per lymphoma. And in two this, this is for azathioprine the purines. So Crohn's They're not the anti-TNFs. I'm getting there. Right. I'm okay. getting there. So Crohn's itself is not thought to be a risk factor for lymphoma, not in general. Anti-TNF therapy has been looked at in several studies, and uh, we'd have to estimate two- to three-fold risk, approximately, is a rough estimate. But it's not very clear, because many of these patients had anti-metabolite therapy, and they may be used in combination. So that is very hard to sort out, but those are the approximate numbers that we tell patients and physicians. And what about with the anti-integrant antibodies? Well, as of date, this has not been an issue. But, but again, these are one-year studies approximately, and it took many years, many patients of follow-up. So caution is there when it comes to any immune suppressant uh, that lymphoma may be a possibility. And these are things that have yet uh, registries are being formed, and the FDA and certainly other regulators are looking at this. But it's something at this point in time that has not been a clinical issue. Well, that's terrific. Great for our patients. So, Miguel? question comes in, which biologic therapy would you stop in your pregnant 23-year-old patient? Which biologic would I stop? I would stop none. Um, but as you mentioned before, we have a shared risk decision. And why do I say stop none? Well, the 23-year-old who gets pregnant probably had severe enough inflammatory bowel disease to warrant a biologic therapy that put her into remission and allowed her to get pregnant. So when I'm having this discussion with my young pregnant women, um, some of them weren't able to get pregnant until they started a biologic and went into remission. Getting more specific to the data, seratolizumab, which is now FDA approved only for Crohn's, but seratolizumab does not seem to cross the placenta based on the size of the drug. And so some of us feel comfortable with that throughout pregnancy. However, the other monoclonal antibodies are also category B, B as in boy, as far as safety. And I don't stop infliximab, adalibumab, or vetalizumab now in pregnancy yet. There are very limited data, especially with vetalizumab. There's this piano registry and others looking at pregnancy. Usually in the last trimester, I'll try to time infliximab eight weeks before delivery, adalibumab four weeks before delivery, and I've had a few people vetalizumab eight weeks before delivery. They get a dose, they deliver, and then they resume after that. So I don't stop those treatments. Methotrexate is the absolute exception. They cannot get pregnant on methotrexate. Okay, so questions seem to be very much in, about stopping therapy. So, Gary, a question was thrown out to you saying, well, I'm asked all the time by my patients who come in on a biologic, they're in remission 
For most of your patients, when do you stop that biologic therapy? So the biggest question is, do you want that patient to be in remission? And the answer, of course, is yes. That's your biggest risk factor. It's not the medication that's the enemy in general. It's the disease. And what we want to do is to time that, as Miguel had said. So 36 weeks is not an unreasonable time to consider for the anti-TNFs to say, let's time it so it's not exposed at the time of delivery. Because there has been transplacental transfer at the time of delivery with the IgG1 subclass. So the adalimumab, the infliximab, and golimumab have the potential to have transplacental transfer. So with that in mind, that's important. We also have to discuss live virus vaccination. So the Rio virus, if you would, is a live virus early on. And if someone has been exposed to that, we tell them about their children to not get live virus vaccination acutely. Clinically relevant, it's not certain. There's a case or two described, but it is something we want to do what's best and safest for our patients. So this is often the practice that we've embraced. And I, I just want to uh, follow up because Gary's making a very important point. And, and I think even outside of pregnancy, to your question about de-escalating or stopping treatment and wanting to keep people in remission, this is an enormously important area that we don't really have good data on at this point, meaning that the patient who you've done three colonoscopies over five years on a biologic, you can't even tell that they have ulcerative colitis. And Gary, I think you mentioned this earlier, these are patients who have histologic improvement, they have no ulcers and inflammation, the data are limited, but I do start to wonder, maybe there are groups of people we can stop or de-escalate. We don't have good data yet, but I think this is one of the most important topics going forward in terms of cost and long-term safety. Maybe there are groups that we can stop. We've been telling people never stop. I'm still telling my patients who are severe enough I don't feel comfortable with that. But I do think we need to rethink this over time. So, so if there was someone who you would stop, I, I hear the term deep remission being thrown around. And deep remission is what you might consider stopping. Gary, what, what does that mean? So deep remission is when a patient has no evidence of any disease. There's endoscopic healing. You look at serologic markers as well. The CRP, the SED rate if you get it is normal. The white cell count's normal. These are the patients that have complete healing. And you take a biopsy and there's no histologic evidence of active inflammation. And it's that population that has the best outcome. There was a study done by Edouard Louis that looked at this. Uh, the individuals, if you stop therapy uh, and you restart it afterwards, 83% could gain response. Uh, if you stopped it, about half would flare. But it's the population that has deep remission that one can consider this. In my personal practice, I might not stop an anti-TNF. I might lower the dose of an anti-metabolite in a graded fashion and see how they do clinically if it's a concern being on combination therapy. But once again, real-life circumstances come up. Women, you know, for example, might get breast cancer. What do you do at that point in time? Do you want them on an anti-TNF when they're actively being evaluated? Someone has an acute infection. They have pneumonia from whatever source. You have to stop therapy at that point till they heal. So these occur in real life, and we try to prognosticate and estimate things, and in so doing, we do this in clinical practice. You know, kind of shifting gears the other direction, Miguel, is there any data on patients who are on monotherapy with a biologic of adding a thiopurine, azathioprine 6-MP, or methotrexate to increasing their efficacy? 
Yeah, so there, the data, um, to get to your point, we've talked about combination from the start. Now you're asking a biologic monotherapy, and the, right. the data are from a couple. One, from an efficacy standpoint, adding a second agent. So remember, methotrexate and the thiopurines work on T cells, and not to get too scientific, there are different mechanisms for inflammation, so adding that may help. The other, which is interesting, I don't think we talked about this, but people who have low-level antibodies, meaning they might start to develop antibodies against the drug, they're not high levels of antibodies, but they're low enough, we think we may be able to overcome them by adding an immunomodulator. So there are data to suggest that. I do that in my own practice in that, that exact scenario that you bring up, and, and I think that there are patients who do respond, yes. An, in, an interesting yeah. study was done by the group out of Tel Aviv. Uh, they looked at patients that had positive antibodies, and actually some had high-level antibodies, right. and they added immune modulators, uh, azathioprine uh, or methotrexate, and they showed in a subset of some patients they could negate these antibodies completely. So that has yet to be put to prime time. The group in Miami has shown that a 6-thioguanine nucleotide level of 125 is needed in order to achieve reduction in immunogenicity. So it's not full dose, the 235 or higher that we look to achieve, but it's a lower dose anti-metabolite therapy is effective to negate the effects directly. So we're learning about this directly, and perhaps this will be in our algorithm in the future. But at this point in time, that's important. Van Castiel has published that you can have transient antibodies or persistent antibodies. Those with transient antibodies do better than those with persistent antibodies. So there's a host of different permutations and combinations that will evolve. Yeah, and you know, there's even data now in methotrexate, not just in RA, but in inflammatory bowel disease from our group showing that higher doses of the methotrexate, 15 milligrams or higher, are associated with better outcomes. So we used to tell people, oh, you can just give them a little dose of the azathioprine 60p or methotrexate, but in, that, in reality, Maria Bruce group in Miami, our group in Chicago, and Israeli group, uh, as well, too, uh, well showing that, no, you know what, you actually may want to be giving more therapeutic doses of the immune modulators to, to decrease antibody rates right. as well. So, uh, Gary, I've been waiting to ask you this question because I know this is an area that you've, uh, you've actually produced research on. Placebo, how did so many people get better with placebo in these trials? <laughs> So I always say buy stock in placebo because it's a drug that does well. Uh, but the reality is this is a disease that varies. And we all pick uh, the treatment modalities to help benefit uh, patients. But we want to do so and we want to differentiate from placebo. So patients may present that have active IBD. You treat them, they get complete mucosal healing, and they still have symptoms. You might say, that's impossible. How is that? Well, they may have irritable bowel, lactose intolerance, mm -hmm. uh, other symptoms that come about as a consequence of not necessarily having active mucosal inflammation. So there's a natural waxing and waning of the disease over time that comes about that is important to recognize. And it's always to power it to achieve benefit for placebo. And we look at the number needed to treat as a rough estimate of the general efficacy of things as it relates to medical therapy. So more frequent doctor's visits. We've published data to show that that's important. Having biomarkers that are abnormal, having abnormal inflammation in the bowel itself. In a recent study that was looked at for ulcerative colitis, 
20% of patients were thought to have active disease had normal histology on the biopsies. So it's even the physicians may think that they have active disease when not. So these are very important lessons we've learned, and it helps for clinical trial design to know the factors that influence the placebo response. Yeah, I think every time you get an upgrade in your endoscopic system, either with the scopes or the optics or the screen, the high def, things all of a sudden look red that weren't red before. So I always encourage people, always biopsy, prove that you in the ileum, prove it was normal. Take a few biopsies, you're already there biopsies throughout the colon, even if it looks normal to you, because as you guys well know, we get patients who have active inflammation that we were told look normal, and I've even had that happen. I thought it looked normal, and I'm surprised. The pathologist says, no, you got to come see this. And I think to your point, Ross, you asked earlier, if a patient has normal-looking bowel, but biopsies show histologic inflammation, that is not a patient I would de-escalate or stop treatment. So I, I think that's I mean, an important point. I, th I think that that's a very good point, too. So you finally get your, your patient in front of you, Miguel, and you're faced with an IV versus an injection drug, and there's a patient who's had poor compliance before, adherence. I mean, how are you going to be able to improve their adherence? What type of steps can you or your group do <clears throat> to improve the compliance with these patients? With the biologic therapy, the adherence is often based on a personal interaction. And what I mean by that is with an infusible agent, it's usually with an infusion nurse or an infusion team. Uh, whether it's done in an infusion center or now whether it's done by a nurse that comes to the house and provides the infusion. So the personal contact, you know if that patient's received an infusion or not. Similarly, the injectable treatments also have programs by which they will have nurses or assistants come to the home or come to the patient to monitor and give injections to. To your point though, if it's a patient who says, look, I'm not gonna do a therapy on my own, I'm generally telling them, why don't we do an infusible agent because we know we're gonna have a fixed schedule, or if we do an injectable, let's have a nurse that comes to the house. Let's have a nurse that's administering this. Because I think that's an important point. You don't want these people stopping and starting treatment too many times because then they do develop antibodies and you've burned that bridge, if you will. So good point, Russ. I, th I think that's, uh, that's an important thing to take into consideration. Part okay. of the things that are important as well is education, to educate them as to why it's important to take medication. Many times they think, oh, I'm just taking medication because, you know, my doctor wants me to and it's a hassle. I don't want to do it. The young male, for example, comes to see you in the office. Educate them what remission is. Explain to them why it's important to take things and the avoidance of steroids, why steroids, conventional corticosteroids, for example, might be dangerous. We've published data, you were involved as well, in the TREAT registry where we recognized with Crohn's that it's double the mortality and double the severe infectious complications. So although the patients may feel good, it's not a good long-term solution. Yeah, I, I think there's no incentive greater than telling patients, well, I can always put you back on steroids to suddenly make them compliant, at least in the short term. But many studies have shown that you need to reinforce this. So Gary, you know, we showed some induction data and it seemed the endpoints were at six weeks or eight weeks, maybe 10 weeks. So does that mean that for six to 10 weeks, you have a sick patient? Is that when the drugs start working? So, so the drugs start working early on. Anti-TNF therapy within a week often, you might see some benefit. Uh, clearly there's serologic improvement with CRP. And in anti-integrin therapy, it's rather early as well. But we often use other agents as bridges. 
So we might use a poorly absorbed corticosteroid if someone has uh, more like budesonide, if you would, for someone that has moderate disease and is not severe mandating hospitalization. So that is placed on for a period of perhaps eight weeks as the patient then gains a response. And once that withdrawn, you then recognize, is the patient doing well? Are they having active symptoms? Do you need to then uh, give them a repeat course until the drugs which we're using are not only inductive but also maintenance drugs take effect? Okay, so we're going to shift gears again. We're going to go to the kitchen table. So Miguel, kitchen table is a center of family activities. It's a family of meals, it's a family discussions, and apparently now it's become the center for self-fecal transplants. What, what do we know about fecal transplants <clears throat> in an IBD? I don't, I don't know if your family, Ross, uh, sits around and uses fecal transplants at the kitchen table, but I know mine doesn't. But to your point about the microbiome, so. Um, fecal microbiota transplant, FMT specifically, right now, today, and in our center, I would feel comfortable with a patient who has refractory Clostridium difficile, C. diff infection that's not clearing with the standard antibiotic treatments that we use. Um, I think the data in that group is very compelling. Outside of that, fecal microbiota transplant would not be something outside of a research trial right now that I would recommend for Crohn's or ulcerative colitis. Interestingly, natural therapies are still the hottest area for our patients, the hottest area of interest. You talk about transplants, you talk about worm therapy, some of these other diet therapies are still probably most interesting. Um, but I'm not using FMT, fecal microbiota transplant, outside of clinical research in inflammatory bowel disease today. And there's actually been a clinical trial, a prospective randomized placebo-controlled mm -hmm. clinical, clinical trial that looked at fecal transplant in the form of an enema. Paul Mayotte and his group presented about a year ago uh, data that showed it was no more effective than placebo. Now the question that comes up is it uh, once is how they were given, should it be given multiple times? Uh, was it was in the form of an enema, should it be a nasogastric tube or by colonoscopy? Um, and these are some of the factors that are being looked at. I know your center has a big interest in this as well, Russell. Well, we do, but I never accept any margaritas made by any of our faculty members. Um, <laughs> we, you know, the European meetings uh, just had presentation of failure of fecal transplant given by um, oral gastric tube as well, too. Yeah, I think we have to be careful right. recommending that to our patients, mm -hmm. so I agree. Okay, so there's also been some interest in cannabis. In Illinois, uh, it is, Crohn's disease is listed as one of the indications, but there's so much infighting about the license that they haven't licensed any of the distributors yet, but what, what's the deal with cannabis, Gary? So the, the big issue is mucosal healing. Does it achieve mucosal healing? And to date, there's been no placebo-controlled randomized trials that show mucosal healing. The patients feel better, and we all recognize that's something that happens. The patients uh, having disease active, uh, they say they feel better on medication, but does it influence the course of disease? And that's where the big issue is. It's a very hotly uh, looked at uh, area, very important area to help discern if it is beneficial. And I think this will come with future trials. But at this point in time, we're not quite there. We do recognize cigarette smoking is something that has been important in ulcerative colitis. Those that have smoked cigarettes often do better if they were former smokers. They induce it. We don't recommend that for patients directly, and it's often patients that just stop smoking might have onset of their disease. Whereas with Crohn's, 
smoking is deleterious. And Mario Cotone and others throughout the world have really published very nice data to show this is the case. And there's even been meta-analyses done on this subject. So at present, we don't advocate that as a routine. Do Miguel just bring up the cigarette smoking idea? Crohn's and smoking? Fair, so, bad, what's the So story? I think uh, to Gary's point, smoking for Crohn's is like fuel on fire. It's horrible. It makes Crohn's worse. If they have surgery, they usually need another. Uh, cigarette smokers with ulcerative colitis are generally protected, and their first flare is often when they quit smoking. So I think cigarette smoking and ulcerative colitis may be helpful, but like Gary said, it's not something that we're generally recommending for our patients. So then what about yeah, patients who have ulcerative colitis after they stop smoking? Uh, restart them on smoking, give yeah. them like a nicotine patch, give them some nicotine gum, what would you think? So the, um, and this has been looked at and Gary alluded to some of the studies as well, nicotine therapy does not seem to be effective for ulcerative colitis. Interestingly, carbon monoxide might be the agent in cigarette smoke and that's being worked out right now. Um, have I had patients who've quit smoking, who've had ulcerative colitis that's been refractory to biologics and don't want surgery and started smoking again at a low dose, whatever low dose means? Yes. Do they get better? There are certainly those that do. But we have to weigh, as Gary said, the risk-benefit, cardiovascular, the detriments of cigarette smoking and cardiovascular and cancer. Um, but yeah, if you were to ask me, does a smoker who quits have bad ulcerative colitis if they start smoking again, will they get better? Yes, probably they would. Yes, they will. But that's another, and an, an opens another beehive. Another topic. So, Gary, the first Crohn's gene was identified in 2001, the NOD2 gene. We thought that by now we'd be knowing exactly what to do, who to do, and how to do it. Do current available genetic tests help us in any way right now for patients with inflammatory bowel disease? So, as you know, there's 163 genes at least identified for IBD, 30 of which are found specifically in Crohn's, 23 in ulcerative colitis, and the others overlap. Um, at present, there is no gene where you can say, let's get this genetic test and test your child to see if they'll develop Crohn's. Um, this is something that's under investigation. There have been post hoc analyses. I've published one. Maria Breo has published. Marla Dubinsky has published. Others have published where we can use these in an effort to perhaps prognosticate outcomes of patients when it comes to disease. These are not primary prospective studies that have been validated, and they're starting to be looked at in that fashion. So Perhaps in the future, this will be something to use more as a prognosticator as opposed to identifying the individual. Given the heterogeneity that exists with Crohn's and with ulcerative colitis, it's probably not just one disease, but it's many different phenotypic expressions of different genetic mutations. And, you know, following up a little bit on that, uh, we had a few questions about race. Miguel, is there a different approach to people based upon their racial group? I don't know that we would stratify in terms of race and treatment, but to your point, um, we do see racial differences in terms of, um, uh, so certainly our African-American populations tend to have more of a colonic phenotype, meaning inflammation in the colon that can be very aggressive, sometimes refractory to treatment. Um, we know that if, when we look at ethnicities, we know the Ashkenazi Jewish population has a high rate of inflammatory bowel disease. So it's not to say we're not looking at that and taking that into account, but I don't know that we're looking at that, as Gary said, even with the genes and saying, because of a certain race, ethnicity, gender, we're only going to use this medicine. 
What you're getting at though is the true personalized approach. You have somebody enter based on who they are and their genetic makeup and their immune makeup and wouldn't it be nice one day to have a tailored approach and treatment based on the complete person, the true personalized approach. I think we're getting there. I don't know that we're there today, but we are getting there. And then Gary, moving back to the elderly population, can we use anti-TNFs and, and anti-integrant antibodies in an elderly person? Absolutely, and we certainly do. But what we try not to do is the combination therapy. And uh, it's actually suggested, the Belgian group has suggested, perhaps they're less effective in this population. So again, we have to tailor the therapy only when it's medically appropriate. We use caution in that group because being elderly puts you at a higher risk for infectious complications in general. And we had presented some of that data to suggest this is an independent predictor of infectious complications. So be careful, judicious, and when it's right, use it. Yeah, and I, I just, I wanted to mention, I agree with Gary, but, and I also think we have to be practical. So as Gary said, if you have somebody who's 70 years old, otherwise healthy, with bad IBD, and says, I don't want surgery, which may be what we would recommend, I would still use combinations. So I agree with Gary completely. I use more monotherapy, single agent. But if it's somebody who's very sick, we have to be realistic and say, you know what, we'll use combination. We do talk to them about infection, and we do talk to them about a malignancy because of their age. Um, but I wouldn't limit that combination approach uh, automatically. Yeah, I th think for the sicker patient, it's more the infection uh, risk that In we the have. Elderly, so. yeah. You know, actually, we're actually just about finished up now, too, with our After the Show segment. So I would like to thank the faculty, uh, Dr. Gary Lichtenstein at uh, University of Pennsylvania and Dr. Miguel Aguero at Pittsburgh, University of Pittsburgh, uh, for joining us, as well as the audience today. You had fantastic questions. We apologize. We cannot possibly get to all the questions. We try to get as many as we can. We, we hope that you take away the message to use the evidence base in your approach for treating patients with inflammatory bowel disease. I'm Dr. Russell Cohen from the University of Chicago, and I'd like to thank you and the CME Outfitters and, and the, our sponsors for making this program possible. Thank you so much.